How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. It's time to get all cultural here at Plastic Towers as we cross the sea to Dublin for today's guest, artist, filmmaker, photographer and documentarian Ruth McHugh. Ruth has worked with the Galway International Arts Festival, the National Irish Visual Arts Gallery, RTE's Doc on One and the Royal Hibernian Academy, but it is her latest project on what is for me a unique building on this side of the water that is the focus of our chat today. For Ruth is currently researching the curious history of Paddy's Wigwam, also known as the Liverpool Metropolitan Catholic Cathedral. It's early Monday evening, sometime in August, and we both had building work around us. In it's early Monday evening, sometime in August, and we both had building work around us go on during the day. So the first question I have to ask is, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Pandemic's still going on, but we're coming out of it, aren't we? You know. I mean, there's definitely life here. How is it coming out of the pandemic over over in Dublin at the moment? Because um, last time I was there was what last March. I think they were closing down Trinity as we were walking through it, um, and I know it's been quite a hectic lockdown there. Yeah, it's been really intense. You know, like we were within a five k radius there for months. Um, the city was dead. There was nothing happening. Um, certain streets there, Nassau Street near Trinity. Um, I mean, there was one shop open, Eason's, on the street, and you felt so sorry for the people in there because it was, it felt so dead and boring. Um, but I live beside the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, and we just had a pilot festival this weekend. So I, I just walked out today to look at the re remnants of that because they um, they set up uh, what were like little cattle pens for families or, or groups of people to be in. And it's all marked out with dots and arrows, you know, for distance for people. And it was an experiment in working it out. And it seems to have been very successful but I'm, I talked to one of the guys coming out and he said like they let a lot of people in you know it was a ticketed thing but they let a lot of people in they opened the gates and let a lot of people in at eight o'clock and I was like oh my god I was here you know <laughs> I could have just wandered up um but it does feel a little yeah because it's it's been really intense it has I, I presume it's been similar for you I've had the the good fortune of actually running these podcasts, so I've been able to keep myself active. And also, it's a it's not necessarily something that requires too many other people to to engage on a one to one basis with, you know, at least not live and so forth. I mean, I'm presuming that as an artist, your work tends to be solitary. Yeah, though I mean, projects like that. This particular project has brought me in contact with a lot of people. You know, in Liverpool. I applied for funding to do it and I got a travel grant from the Arts Council. So I actually traveled to Liverpool in 2018, thinking that I was going to finish this project and then various things happened that delayed it. And, you know, I really thought I was going to finish it. I was about to finish it just when the pandemic hit, you know, so it's been building for a long time. But I did go over and, um, met a lot of people. I worked with the Liverpool Irish Centre with Metal, which is uh, based in Edge Hill Station. And they, it was really the fact that I got a residency there 
that put me in a position to get the travel grant to go over. It was very organic, but they kind of helped me, suggested people I stay with. And one of those people was Tom Calderbank, who was very generous and very, very involved in lots of different little aspects of culture and community work. So I am. Um, he brought me some really interesting avenues. Everybody I met kind of brought me here, brought me there. There were people working on hot desks in metal, kind of producers for theater, and they would mention something. And, you know, it just forked out and radiated the whole project investigating. And, and I had a, you know, really, um, really rich time in two weeks. I programmed myself and I got everything that I wanted to get done done. You know, and, you know, I, I even found people, I read bits in books and found an email address for a woman who had been at a play in The Everyman that was written about Paddy's Wigwam and shown around that time. And there's no, I couldn't find good records of this play, but she had kind of been at it and like nobody, like I think she, what she really noticed was there was only like a couple of people, including herself and her husband in the audience. But he, I think he, her husband was running the Everyman. So that was really, and she was really interesting as well. And I, I walked the streets and talked to people about the wigwam as well, you know, and just asked people. Going through the uh, the introduction there, and obviously artist, photographer, filmmaker, documentarian, and so forth. You wear an awful lot of hats. Is this um is is this a certain restlessness? Curiosity, yeah. I mean, I I studied painting, but then I think maybe I worked in galleries for years, so I would have worked with an awful lot of artists and an awful lot of different materials and um, media. And do you come from an artistic family? We would have been hugely encouraged to do art and like my there's a national prize for art and my sister won it when she was three ended up kind of disappearing <laughs> out of the house out of my grandparents house and i was like two i think and uh, she came back with a scooter um and the next day she was on the front page of the national newspapers <laughs> with her scooter and her thumb in her mouth. So. <laughs> um, was this in Dublin? Yeah, yeah. It was the Texaco art competition at the time. Um, my grandfather was a stone carver, um, sculptor-ish, more, more a, he carved Celtic crosses, but he also dealt in art he bought and sold um paintings at auctions this is tom McHugh, yes yeah and he's he's a subject of the documentary that you are involved with for with rte uh, caravaggio and tomb yeah yeah for those of our listeners who, who who haven't yet um uh heard it and i'd recommend that they did do you want to give a, a brief synopsis of um of, of uh, caravaggio and tomb i had done cultural studies that's probably the big hat that leads me down research. I, I, I studied public culture and started doing a lot of research. And part of that, you know, I began to really see, 
you know, our own cultural histories and the richness of, of, of cultural histories through family. And I had known a little bit about my grandfather. You know, my father was very proud of the, you know, he had carved Celtic crosses that were big, like the, the, the Cross of Kells, very big and tricked. I mean, like as a child, they were like amazing, you know, and there was there's a fabulous one kind of in, a, in an area near Carolus Strand and in Chewham. The, a lot of the crosses were around Chewham and Clare, I think, actually. And out of the blue, um, I was at dinner one night with and, and uh, at, with some friends, and this man, my friend, was an artist, and this man said to me, "Your grandfather bought and sold a Caravaggio in 1930." I read it in the newspaper, and they had reprinted an article from 1930s in the newspaper in Chum, and he was actually a nephew of Tom Murphy, the playwright. The guy who mentioned it, um, who was also from Chum. So um, that just came to me now. Um, so I did a lot of research into my grandfather and went looking for this painting. And it was supposedly sold in Christie's. So I contacted Christie's and they gave me a catalog citation for the sale but they wouldn't tell me, they couldn't tell me who had bought the piece. So the citation for the sale described it as a girl in a blue dress with embroidered cloak. And to me, I, I knew Caravaggio. I'd actually seen an enormous exhibition of Caravaggio's in Rome. And the, that description sounded quite insipid for a Caravaggio, you know? I, it didn't sound totally like his, his work, and so I was, I was dubious and I, I kind of lost heart. It seemed like I'd come to a dead end. And then my, my cousin's daughter, my cousin once removed, approached me because she had an idea to make a documentary about this. So we worked together. She came to me. I had this massive research that I had done around it and I had written it up. And then we, we went looking and she, through Doc on One, we had contacts in the National Gallery and they had better contacts than us with Christie's and managed to find out that it had been bought in by A. Martin, who turned out to be the director of Christie's. So it was kind of like Christie's buying it back in itself. It's really quite the detective story, isn't it? It is, yeah. So we we went looking, like, yeah, it's a very long story. And it was um, it was really hard work. We, we looked and we looked and we looked. And I did a lot of going through newspapers, microfiche, finding the auctions, finding the descriptions in the auctions, things like that. And then I, I believed that because it was bought in, it would come back out. It would be sold back out. And I started going through the years of the catalogues, but it was uh, relentless. I mean, it was very, very long. And I was, I was imagining what I had was that it was a very specific size. And I was learning that there was very specific dimensions. And this turned out to be a big, big clue, you know, because it was very unusual as though someone had maybe cut it a little bit or something. 
you know, so it, the dimensions really helped us to identify it. Don't give everything away because I just think that actually listening to the to the documentary, it's a marvelous radio experience. Yeah, and and it turned out there was an aspect for me as a female artist that made it that made it like made it better than I could have imagined. And and some people would see that as like, oh, but it, you know, it wasn't worth gazillions, and it was worth a lot. It's worth about five million. That'll do. <laughs> Which is not to be scoffed at. Um, so I mean, yeah, it was I. It was, we had so much fun. We really had a fabulous time making it. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Find out more at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Ruth McHugh's work is both academic and instinctive, as she brings a questing intelligence to the matters of how our environment changes us and how we shape it. Is not just an issue for members of the diaspora. But before we go further into her relationship with Paddy's wigwam, I want to talk to her about her previous project, Spectres of Modernity, which took place in the last of the Ballymun high-rise towers in Dublin, just before it was pulled down. I studied film. I mean, I had been wanting to make films for ages, and then I decided uh, I had the opportunity to study uh, online video production. And you know, to actually really study filmmaking. And coming out of that, I knew that I needed hands-on experience, you know, to keep up the, the skills that I had learned. Like I, I liked using the camera, etc. And I didn't have a camera myself. So I got this job in Ballymun. It was like not very well paid, but it gave me access to editing. So I learned editing. I'd already learned editing in the other course, but it was a like I would never really like if that was Avid and this was Final Cut Pro, which was far more accessible to actually do editing myself. And I had access to cameras and it was community orientated. And I found myself in Ballymun wandering around. And one of the guys showed me, you know, I thought Ballymun was gone actually at the time. I thought all the, the flats were gone. Because how many tower blocks was it? Seven. Yeah, and they were what, built in the 50s or 60s? They were built, they were opened in 1967, the same year as, well, the tower blocks, the the, the high-rise blocks. Mm. So, like, the, the last tower block I built with was Plunkett Tower. So all those towers were called after the heroes of the rising. So, yeah, it also ended up being a project that was a little bit about that kind of, because um, it was around 2016 that I was actually, I was hoping to, to actually show it in 2016, but I think I showed it in 2017, which was 50 years after the first people had moved into the, the Ballymont Towers. So it ended up being 50 years for the, the, the tower that I was dealing with, you know? And they don't have a great reputation, do they, the, the Ballymont Project? I mean, so I've seen it being described as like a, a kind of social experiment gone wrong. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot about, like, there was a lot of, I read a lot about, you know, similar projects in France as well. And, you know, you had the Pruitt Ego in, in New York. There were all all these tower blocks, kind of utopian social housing schemes that ended up, you know, being demolished. 
a lot of them were. I mean, I eventually, when I did show the project, someone came, someone, an architect came in and said it was only meant to last that long. It was never meant to last any longer. That was the life. 50 years. 50 years, yeah. Yeah, it actually, I think he thought it lasted longer than it was supposed to last, which really was like to the idea of something so, such a huge amount of housing to be obsolete, you know, have inwritten obsolescence, isn't it? That's kind of, it is kind of part of modernized modernism as well, isn't it? That Yes, and you talk about modernists, uh, modernist buildings, and I'm, I'm not, uh, I mean, so I knew a few architects and students and things like that, but what, what actually sort of like defines a, a modernist building? Oh, gosh, that's... Uh... I, I mean, I would have been looking at, like when I, I was looking at, uh, <laughs> I actually really rather liked the book called From Bauhaus to Our House by Tom Wolfe, which I don't know that architects really like because it's rather cynical about the, the whole modernist movement and Le Corbusier um, and this very modular kind of building. And what I was interested in was like modernist art, like the Mondrian art that's very linear and graphic and based on the grid and, and that association with Le Corbusier's kind of building, which is all very modular. Um, and like the idea, I think Le Corbusier believed that the house was a machine for living in, you know, and, and you have that with idea. It was, I mean, when I did interview people, they were very excited about what they got in Ballymun. When they were moving in in the beginning, they were very excited about moving into Ballymun and having a warm house. And there was underfloor heating, which never kind of went off in the summer. So they would have the windows wide open and they'd be sweltering in the summer, but they had underfloor heating all winter, never seemed to go off. But um, it ended up being very, very troubled and especially the elevators were a huge problem. They were, you know, kids were playing with them from the start and setting off alarms and they were never working, you know, and, and then people ended up having to walk up. Oh, they were, they were quite high, actually. They were quite high. What were they, 18 stories or something? Yeah, so they, I mean, it ended up being disastrous, but... I mean, some of the people I interviewed in, in the film, I don't think you've actually seen the film, like one of the women says, you know, that what they really did is they moved people out there who didn't want to, that they loved it. But then they started moving people out who didn't want to be there and they hated being there and they hated the place. And, and then it all started going wrong, you know, but it's, it's still, it, it is very much lacking for the amount of a population that was, you know, mushroomed in there. There was a lack of facilities, you know, and social life and cultural life around such a huge building. You weren't just like doing a documentary there, were you? It was, um, it was also a kind of installation there, wasn't it? Yeah, what I did was um, I would I I was a child when Ballymon was going up, and I had this kind of notion of the sixties, and I decided to kind of juxtapose a very cliched, like if you look up sixties 
you know, you'll get this view of the 60s where everybody was wearing those go-go's boots and these dresses, you know, and twiggy. And I decided to juxtapose what was this utopian, very cliched, not very real view of Ballymun with the dystopian, you know, place that was empty and there were curtains blowing in the wind and there was nobody there. There was actually only one person. There was one guy I got to know him, Pepe, and he was living there. And even he in the documentary describes how people started asking him to get a bit of the building for them, uh, you know, because they wouldn't know a bit off their own balcony because they wouldn't know it once it was all rubble they wouldn't know which bit was which you know so he he actually went and got a bit of their balcony for them um i just nobody was around there were people kind of scavenging a bit a few young people kind of i don't know people they were getting bits and pieces for people and i just started recording i started taking photographs i started i got absolutely fascinated with the place and the wallpaper in the rooms and the pigeons living there and, you know, curtains blowing in the wind. And I, I just found this, like these touches, little, you know, little bits of lives left, you know, just all over the place. You know, there were tiny little things. Every time I went back, there was some little thing or, you know, the, was some remnant of somebody's life there and it was very peculiar I got quite you know obsessed with recording this place and then I there was a girl working with me who was quite young she was tiny she was tiny minute and she turned out to be a kind of a she was my twiggy you know and I I, I started collecting clothes for the project you know in secondhand shops. And I was looking for a dress, a Mondrian dress, and I found one in Galway for three euros, you know, but it was perfect and it read into the building completely. And I was interested in this, like, you know, the buildings and the fashions and art, all reading, you know, overlaid, reading into one another. And she was game. And it wasn't until we were standing there one day, you know, and she was in the this Mondrian dress in front of the building that was reading in. And I said, did you actually live there? And she said, I lived up there, you know? And she turned it, she and her sister turned out to be wonderful. They gave, they, they, they gave me a beautiful insight into how it was home, no matter what it had been home to them, you know? And her sister had kept her keys and they'd been asked for their keys back. But her sister said, you know, they asked me, but I kept those keys because, you know, that was home and nothing else was home, you know, and she still has the keys in her box, you know, and it was a very, I really, uh, it was very special making, and, and I interviewed older women. So you ended up like kind of, I mean, no, anything you do, I think like, I mean, I thought it was about something very but it ended up being very personal and lovely that her grand their grandmother was really really proud of them being a part of it and their grandmother had been hugely influential 
in Ballymun in setting up a credit union. And she was a very modest woman who had been a huge force there, you know, and it was, um, we had we had a lot of fun doing it, you know. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. We'll be back with Ruth McHugh shortly. But first, it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my interviewees to raise up and salute a member of the diaspora of personal, cultural or political significance to them. This week, Anthony Ekendayu Lennon, who, fittingly, brings his own heritage to bear as he salutes a long-gone family forebear. I have to give thanks to one of my cousins who literally just the other week sent me an email and the email talks about a man called James Doyle of Kildare and Lee Lynn. Please forgive me if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, Yeah, I'm just reading about this man. I'm fascinated. Um, There's articles about him. People have written books about him. People quote him. This is just very quickly from the Irish Times, December 3rd, 1998. A great vindicator. Doyle became the leading theoretician of an Irish poor law based on parochial assessment. His evidence in London before Parliament, parliamentary debate, on the state of Ireland in 1825 was regarded as a tour de force. Um, Yeah, his phrase, may your hatred of tithes be as lasting as your love of justice, became the slogan of the tithe war. A figure of the first rank, Doyle died of tuberculosis in 1834. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've literally got the paperwork in front of me and give thanks to my cousin because apparently looking at a um, family tree that my cousin's creating, James Doyle is my great, 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 great grandfather. Anthony Ekendayu Lennon there. And if you want to hear more of Anthony's interview or indeed any of our other interviewees, then why not go to our episodes page at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Alternatively, seek them out on Spotify, Amazon or Apple Podcasts. And if you want to hear the latest from the Plastic Podcasts, then why not subscribe? Simply enter your email address at the foot of the homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com and one confirmatory click later, you'll be getting not just the latest podcast, but also First dibs on the accompanying blog, sent direct to you and as fresh as fresh can be. And now back to Ruth McHugh. We talk about how her Ballymun project led to her investigating the Liverpool Metropolitan Catholic Cathedral. It's all got something to do with the Summer of Love, 1967. But I'll let her explain. I was already kind of aware of Liverpool being the centre of the universe, as I think Alan Ginsberg said around that time in the mid 60s. Um, I was aware of Liverpool and looking at Liverpool. um, And I looked for something comparable to Ballymone. I was was thinking of doing a kind of a companion piece to Ballymone across the water. 
in Liverpool. And I started looking at the dates and buildings, and then I discovered uh, the Metropolitan Cathedral. And I was kind of like, mm. And then I thought like, you know, with modernism, there was the square and there was the circle and they were kind of very, you know, there's dots, circles, modernist architecture, you imagine, you know, circles and straight lines and circles in the clothes as well, dots, circles, like targets, all these kind of things. So I thought that that would be great. That's a circular building, you know, as compared to the very, very linear and square Ballymon, you know, this straight up tower, which is all straight lines. Um, and I thought it was kind of like, yeah, well, that's like the squaring of the circle, like the mandala. It's an unusual history, um, the, uh, the the Catholic cathedral, as much as the funds to actually build it were were, were locally raised amongst the amongst the Irish Catholics themselves, weren't they? Yes, and this was this was something else that I found because I was really interested in modernism, and then I thought I will look into modernism, fashion, and Catholicism, and I discovered a woman called Charlotte Wildman, who I met, I arranged to meet when I came over to Liverpool. And she was a historian and she had written, well, she's a diasporic. She felt that, you know, the women were Irish women were, you know, there was the story of Irish women was not very empowering. You know, they were kind of invisible. And she researched the cathedral and she, I mean, the original cathedral, okay, there are two cathedrals, the, the Anglican and the Catholic. And I think they, the original cathedral, they, they, the Catholic Church wanted to make the biggest cathedral in Christendom if they could. But <laughs> they had designed a cathedral that was um, just a tad smaller than St. Peter's. It was going to be ginormous. I mean, there was a big competition going on. I think the Anglican Cathedral had started being built in, in the 20s, but it actually didn't get finished till after the Catholic Cathedral. So that had a very long span. So, um, but they were competing and um, Luchens, who's a, you know, he would, he would be Edwin Luchens was the designer of the cathedral that they, they decided that they wanted and the Irish Catholic women started raising funds for the cathedral. Now they must have had the Lichens design because they're actually, you know, they're selling tea cloths, they're selling tea and they're selling cigarettes with the image of the cathedral on them. And the, you know, Charlotte Wildman actually has, I've seen slideshows, you know, of, of presentations she's done with these images of the of the tea and the the cigarettes and she considers it quite you know that the 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 catholic church had actually written an encyclical against modernity and it was you know it had all kinds of encyclicals about the kind of fashions that women should wear and could wear you know and and they shouldn't be wearing modern clothes etc and so she sees this fundraising for the cathedral as actually 
an embracing of consumer culture for the cathedral. So instead of a rejection of modernity in the process of, you know, trying to raise the funds, you have people actually embracing consumer culture. That's interesting. That's interesting. One, th- one thing that's like spun off as you as you as you were saying all that is, of course, that you were talking about um, pop art with the circles and and so on. And of course, pop art was the uh, was the province essentially of, of the mods, and um, uh, mods took their name mm-hmm. from the Italian modernists. Thus, the lambrettas, thus the uh, Italian suits and th- and things like that. You're getting very very close to the very heart of the Catholic religion, which is also the heart of modernism. See, the thing is, the architecture itself. I mean, cathedrals. That kind of money. Is, is a real avenue for a, a star architect. I mean, it probably preceded these like big galleries and big museums that are maybe the, the projects these days, big cultural star architect things. But in those days, I think, you know, if, you know, if you wanted to be an ambitious and, and sell yourself through a building, you know, the church would have been a big patron of architecture and and i and i think architecture itself was was hugely veering towards the modern anyway i mean there was a competition for the the cathedral and one of the defining features of the competition was that over 3000 people could fit in in the cathedral and that it should be visible everybody should be able to see like the altar should be raised and everybody should be have a good vision of it so it naturally suggested you know that, that that if you if you have a radius if you if you make it circular then you can get more people seeing well the the central point there are about 300 entries for the competition but a lot of the, the the shortlisted entries were circular, were radial. They're they're figuring out this is the the monsignor who sets the tone for the building, you know, who sets the parameters for the competition, has stated that you know this ought to be visible, clearly visible to all people, you know. So it makes it. I mean, it makes the the circle the best. And then I think, you know, I think Gibbard then saw it as building this tent up over the the raised altar, you know. But of course, then, like, I mean, it's not just called Paddy's Wigwam. There was a, it's called the Mersey Funnel and the Pope's launch pad. So, I mean, it does. It looks like a spaceship, really. It's funny because it has really become very iconic. It's, you, you know, all those like little, you see a lot of, merchandise that uses the silhouette of the cathedral as a very identifying part of some kind of silhouette of the the skyline in Liverpool and other people I interviewed remembered it was uh what what, what was the program was it Brookside yes that it, it came in over and you saw the cathedral from the air in that you know I mean and it has it is like very iconic but a lot of a lot of the Catholic people, they, they you know, they they there's talk of the the Luchens, massive Luchens Cathedral being the greatest building never built, 
And of course, the model is in the, the People's Museum. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, no. It's enormous. The model is enormous. It, it really is hard to fathom how this huge building would have fit into that space. And the crypt is extraordinary. The crypt is, um, I, I, I said that to you, that I, I, I really feel like this building is, is like Catholic modernism, you know? That like up on the top layer, you've got this like space age cathedral, but underneath there's this archaic crypt um, that, that really feels it feels like the Catholic Church being, you know, all secrets and, you know, the sense of wealth of the church, of, of, of gold vestments, of all these like accoutrements of the Catholic Church that relate to it having been a very, a royalty all of its own, you know. I, I couldn't have imagined the crypt and I had been to to the cathedral a lot of times before I went down to the crypt. And it's just like, it's it's like a cavern. It's interesting. It's cavernous. <laughs> and and that's, that's something that's very particular to Liverpool maybe. And I, that's just come to me this moment. That it's like a cavern, you know, and 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 that's where the Beatles came from, you know, started, wasn't it? And and this is something that I don't know. I'm not familiar with these kind of underground, vast places. But I'll tell you, the cavern is like small compared to the scale of what's under the cathedral. Like it really feels very vast. And then you have these like incredible things there. Like you have a man. An archer, like soon after the, the building opened, it started leaking. Pipers, uh, and that was really interesting. There was a film in the Tate Modern of Piper making the stained glass, which was kind of wonderful to see. But uh, it did start leaking and they started, they got an archer in to shoot up to knock bits down. <laughs> try and try and fix it I mean I, I still can't figure out what that was about but it's kind of the daftest thing I've ever seen you're listening to the plastic podcasts we all come from somewhere else and that's more than just a hashtag email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com Elsewhere in our interview, but edited out partly due to the constraints of time, but also partly so I get to sound smart in this bit, Ruth made mention of Arthur Dooley, the Liverpool-born artist responsible for the four boys that shook the world sculpture opposite the site of the cavern in Matthew Street. Dooley's 1972 film, One Pair of Eyes, has him claim that the cathedral is not for the people it's meant to serve. I want to know if this is a view that Ruth shares, and how she and others feel about Paddy's wigwam. Yeah, well, some people said it was for the Silk Curtain Irish. It was built for the Silk Curtain Irish. One guy I met, like, had been an altar boy, and they were from around the, the that, that area near the bullring at the back of the cathedral, and they were supposed to serve, and then they they were demoted, and it was given away to some other school. A kind of a posher school and they lost 
their gig doing serving at the opening of the cathedral so I mean he they you know from the beginning then it felt like it belonged it was for other people like he said that's got nothing to do with us you know and our Catholics people and again like I, I interviewed people who would have been kind of lapsed Catholics who have a kind of a a soft spot for the old St. Patrick's, you know, or, or the old churches, you know, where they would go in and light a candle. And they mention churches that disappeared in, you know, and, and that it's not the same, you know. I mean, it just doesn't embrace them like they imagine the old buildings would. So it was, it was interesting. I, I hadn't really, it wasn't something I expected at all. I found myself asking, asking about the cathedral, starting with the, oh, it's very nice. You know, and it really, like, <laughs> they were platitudes in a way, you know. I mean, the, you know, there was always, you know, but the other one that they, they should have built would have been great. And then we would kind of veer towards the Catholic religion, you know, and and it wasn't my intention ever. It wasn't my intention to go there with this project. You know, it, it I was looking at it very superficially as a modernist building in a way, you know, and how surprising it was as, you know, like some people said that it was really built as a monument to the Irish. And as an Irish person, it's a strange monument to the Irish. I don't know what it says about Irish Catholicism, really. It reflects the time that it's in, and as much as you're talking about uh, 67 and the, and the music and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I found myself, because of the, the 67 thing, I've, I've ended up really looking at it at that time and trying to, trying to place it in that time and, and the idea of it then. And and to get the stories from people, I mean, there were there were all these street parties which I found, which are and the papal bunting because there was a papal nuncio. So, you know, I was wondering in the beginning why is that like it's kind of yellow, yellowy orange and white bunting, but it's papal bunting, and it's strung along all the buildings in the bull ring and leading down to the bull ring, and they had huge tables laid out with parties for the kids. And then I met someone who who admitted to having set the bunting alight, you know? Naughty. Very naughty, you know, um, which was extraordinary. I mean, it's a visually to imagine, but like all this strung out bunting thing on fire is quite an extraordinary vision. Liverpool now has a very, very strong ecumenical tradition going on, but like uh, certainly back in the day, there, there was still that kind of sectarianism of Protestant areas and Catholic areas in the city. One woman I interviewed described her grandmother. Well, she actually described it like they thought it was like carnival, you know, and these all these people out with the, the orange flags um, and everything. But she describes the marches and, and her grandmother hanging out the out over the balcony shouting, ye heathens, ye, ye heathens, ye, you know, and there were these, there were a lot of marches, I think, at the time. And certainly, I think that the the play, there was, the, I've not been able to find the play, 
you know, and I really tried to find the play that this woman had seen. But I think there was it was based on a lot of interviews with people about the cathedral. If this goes out and anybody knows where that play is, I would have to... You don't have the name of it at all or anything like that? I think it might be the Mersey Funnel, actually. Right. We should put out an appeal. When you go to the cathedral or you, you go around there, what's your personal feeling on it? Well, mostly I've been filming around there and I, and I did... Um, you know, I was interested. I, I was interested, like in doing something similar to what I had done in Ballymun. You know, as I could imagine this kind of '60s wardrobe and how it related to the building, and and also, um, I'm, I'm I suppose I'm constantly thinking about the project. I go there. I'm fascinated. There, there is some really beautiful light from some of the those stained glass outside and if it's been wet you get these beautiful colored reflections i've never actually seen a mass in it although i've been there often and and there are usually people visiting but it seems to be very much a tourist thing in a way I, I, it's not a church that i would light a candle in it's it's a it's a very strange because it doesn't it looks smaller than it is because it's way up high up there you know, when you go up to it, it is much bigger than you can imagine a circular church being, you know, like the proportions I, I would have experienced before of a circular church. It's much, much bigger. There are lovely little moments in it when you go around, like especially from the stained glass windows, you get uh, lovely moments in the architecture. Um I can see that someone said, like, um, kids love doing parkour on it, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I enjoy the play of, of shadows and light, you know, from, the, from the, these big arms that come out from it. And at night, I see it looks, it does look like a spaceship. Sometimes it looks extraordinary when you, you catch it, like from somewhere you haven't imagined, you would see it and you just see the, the spire lit up or, or the top of it lit up. It's so much, it's so much a, a, a project and like I'm, it's my project, you know, so I've, I've gotten really used to it, you know, and um, I'm always looking for more about it to learn more about it i think i i told you that like there was a tiny a small version in holbrook that tom calderbank told me about that they had found in holbrook in manchester yeah and and that kind of fascinates me the idea that they made uh, one a tenth of the size maybe there's lots of them maybe there's a lot of mini paddy wigwams dotted around britain Maybe, maybe, but he said he said it had the glass and everything, and yet, and yet it is a it's set up as a a boxing ring. So it had like it has kind of funny. He said it's a square in the middle of a circle, the boxing ring in the middle of it, and he went in to you know to this square in the middle of the circle, and he said he was amused to imagine like someone being knocked out and looking up and seeing the face of God. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Ruth McHugh. The Plastic Pedestal was raised by Anthony Ekundayu-Lennon and music by Jack Devaney. 
Find out more at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts is a production of The Plastic Projects.